0: Well, good morning, Calvary Chapel. Good morning, morning, everyone watching us on Facebook Live, watching us on YouTube. Missy, uh, this—the one on the bottom—the note could just turn it just a smidge that way, that way. No, no, no. You got the the note. The note. Yes. There you go. Perfect. Okay. Still working out the technical difficulties, but uh, this morning. Welcome, by the way. Did I say welcome? (laughs) Maranatha. Maranatha. How is that? Maranatha. Amazing. We, um, We are close. We are getting closer and closer and closer. Amen to that is right. I can't wait. I don't know about you. I'm ready to go home. Before this day is over. So, if you would, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We are going to be in verses 12 through 17. Revelation 2, 12 through 17. As you're looking that up, I just want to read something for you guys to give you a little hope. For this we say to you, Paul wrote this to the church in Thessalonica, who believed they had missed the rapture. Um, There had been some false information, some false doctrine, telling them that they had missed the, the rapture. Can you imagine false doctrine? Can you imagine that today? So Paul wrote this letter to them, and he said, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, and here's the part that we need for today. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So, let me just remind everyone, Maranatha, the Lord is coming soon. The Lord is coming for his church soon. And we are to comfort one another with these words. And so, we may make this a daily practice here at Calvary Chapel, Lee High Valley, to read those words, to remind ourselves that he's coming. Coming soon. So, Revelation chapter 2. Verse 12, if you're there. And to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you... A few things against you, because you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate, repent or else I will come quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and the name, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Lord, we're so amazed by your word. We're thankful for your word, and we pray, Lord, that your word this morning would touch the hearts of all those who hear it, all those who have ears to hear it, Lord, would be touched in some way by your word this morning. We know your word does not come back void and I know as it goes out this morning Lord that it will touch hearts and and cause people to really think. We pray for conviction Lord as your word never condemns but convicts Lord and I pray that through that conviction there would be changes in hearts. Lord we lift up to you this morning Roger and Linda for your hand of protection upon them Lord. We lift up Vicki in the hospital, Lord, and pray for a safe recovery, that she would be home soon. We thank you for Joe and Susan as you brought them through this virus, Lord, and just pray to continue to protect them and those around them. So, Lord, go before us this morning. We're anxious and excited to see what your word holds for us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children said, even on Facebook and at home, amen. So, in all of these letters you notice... That the Holy Spirit, or Jesus, directs John to write, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And as we've talked about this many times, that means us as individual believers. And so just a little way of review over what we've discovered, the application that we've discovered so far in the book of Revelation, let's look at what the Spirit wants us to hear. Let's look at how this book so far is applying to our life. You know, Revelation's amazing, isn't it? It's an amazing book. It's not a book we should be fearful of, but a book we can learn from. And I think that's what the message Jesus has for us, is to learn from this book. So the first application was, do not lose your first love. That was to the church of Ephesus. Then we also learned that in the midst of a trial, like we're in today, that we have to have faith over fear. And the reason Jesus gives us for that is because he's conquered death. Because he lives, we will live. And, of course, that was the message to the church in Smyrna. And our application today as we look at the church in Pergamos is not to compromise our faith. So let's dig in. And as you know, we're going by a, um, there is a outline that we're using. And uh, this letter was sent to the city of Pergamos. That's who it's addressed to, which was about 70 miles north of Smyrna. But it was some 15 miles inland. So if you're a, if you're a beach guy like me, living inland kills me. <laughs> living near the beach is great. And so this, although they, they could probably, they, they probably smelled the Aegean Sea, they probably weren't close enough to see it. They were inland. Today, this city is known as Bergama. And again, it is in modern day Turkey. Pergamos was the capital of Asia. It was the center of Roman power and authority in the area. As one commentator said, if Ephesus was the New York City of Asia, Pergamum was its Washington, D.C. The name Pergamos, or Pergamum, as some translations carry it, means citadel or high place, and you're going to learn in a minute why it's called that. Pergamos had a library, of over 200,000 papyrus scrolls, which rivaled the library in Alexandria, Egypt. Pergamos was not only the seat of Roman government in the area, it was also the center of Roman emperor worship and worship to the false gods of that day. They were the first to erect a temple to emperor worship, and they were first to engage in that. Unlike all the other cities in Asia who worshipped the emperor maybe once a year or on special occasions, in the city of Pergamos it was a daily thing. They worshipped the emperor daily in that temple. Now, Augustus, who was a Roman Caesar, who was an emperor of Rome, claimed, as many of them did, that he was a god and that he wanted to be worshipped as a god. Sounds a lot like Satan, doesn't it? Sounds a lot like Satan's I wills in in Isaiah 14. Let me read that to you. Satan said, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Isaiah 14, verses 13 through 14. I will Pretty arrogant, isn't he? But you'd have to be pretty arrogant to claim yourself or proclaim yourself as God. So the gods that they worshipped in Pergamon were all were called Savior and Lord. They looked at their gods that they worshipped as Savior and Lord because the people felt that their gods brought them victory in battle, that their gods brought them health, the gods brought them prosperity. So they looked the them as their lord and their savior. They also worshipped the emperor for much the same reason because he was powerful. He could bring victory in battle. Um, He could bring them deliverance from foreign aggressors. He could provide an atmosphere for them where they could grow in wealth and prosperity just as their savior and lord because that's what was most important to them. Winning battles being number one, health and prosperity. Sound familiar today? So the people of Pergamum were expected, expected to worship the emperor. They were expected to worship these gods as their lord and their savior. And in doing so, many of them were unaware that they were worshiping Satan. So the city of Pergamum sat on top of a thousand foot hill. So it was pretty well elevated, which made it a very defensible against attacks but it also elevated it above every other place in that area. Uh, so they had a great view, view there, but they it just goes to show you how high and lifted up they thought that they were there in Pergamos. Now, there was also a university located in Pergamum, and they also boasted a medical center, like a hospital, if you will. One of the many gods they worshipped there was Asclepius, and Asclepius was the God of healing. He took on the form of a serpent, of a snake. And so what that reminds us of, the most notable today is a physician's staff with the snake or the rod of Achilleus crawling up the rod. That's what this represents. That medical symbol that we see all over the place is actually a pagan symbol. And so what they did with their hospital there was like a kind of like a dormitory type area. And patients or people who were sick or hurting or diseased would go there and they'd sleep on the floor of this dormitory styled place. And so they would use non-poisonous snakes that would crawl around the floor at night. And it was said that if a snake crawled over you or touched you, it was Asclepius healing you and that they would be healed. Out of that hospital or that medical center came a physician who was second only to Hippocrates, and his name was Galen. Galen is considered the father of modern-day pharmacy, pharmakia, sorcery. So the reason I'm presenting all these details about the city of Pergamum is because I want you to know, I want you to understand what the believers there were up against, what they had to deal with on a daily basis. So let's look at it. It was the center or the seat of Roman authority in the area. It was the center of idol worship, which was unparalleled in Asia Minor. And we're going to talk in a few minutes about an altar they had there, an altar to their god, Zeus. It was the center for education and worldly wisdom. And it was the center for scientific discovery. So here in Little Pergamos, I don't know how little it was, but it was the center for politics, it was the center for religion, and it was the center for science. And so no wonder... Jesus says that Satan's throne is here. Because from here, Satan could influence all three of those areas. But this is exactly where our Lord planted his church in Pergamos. In a very, very dark area. And so the second point of our outline this morning is the addressee. Who's the letter addressed to? Look at Revelation chapter 2, the very beginning of verse 12. And to the angel of the church of Pergamos write. So the letter is written to the leader or to the elder, the pastor, if you will, of the church of Pergamos. And as we're going to see here, these believers in Pergamos are witnessing. They're ministering right in the heart of one of the most evil places on earth. The throne of Satan is here. Now we complain that the hearts of people that we minister to are hard, that it's hard ground, it's hard to minister to them, it's hard to preach the gospel. Can you imagine being a church located right in the heart of where Satan's throne was? Can you imagine driving to church every Sunday, past a sign that says, Welcome to the home of Satan? I mean, it really puts ministry in perspective for us, doesn't it? So who is the author of this letter? Look at the second part of verse 12. These things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. So we know that this is Jesus. He is the author of this letter. And he describes himself to the church of Pergamum as the one who has a sharp two-edged sword. Now the sword would give power and authority to whoever wielded it. The Greek, the Greece and Rome had both conquered many nations by the sword. The sword was also used for judgment. Those Those who were captured, those who were brought before the courts, they used the sword sometime to pronounce judgment upon them. And we know from scripture that the sword of Jesus can also represent judgment and power and authority of the word of God. And so I believe that as Jesus speaks of the sword here, it represents both his power and his judgment. And so he's showing the church in Pergamum his sword. And it's, it's a sign to them that he has all the power. He has all the authority. Not Rome, not the leaders of the city, not the governor. He has the power. It is the sort of judgment which will come against the pagan practices of this city. And because they're trying to force the believers there to worship the emperor and entice them to worship their gods, Jesus is telling them that the word of God still has authority and power in their lives. Not the word of man, not the rule of emperors, not the rule of governors. Jesus is the Lord and Savior. Jesus' word has complete authority. And so let's look now in our outline at the affirmation, what Jesus says about this church, what he reveals about this church, the good things. Look at verse 13. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So first, Jesus, first of all, Jesus mentions five things here, five things that are good about this church. I know where you, I know your works, and I know where you dwell. I know what you've been doing, I know how hard you've been ministering, because I know where you've been planted. You've been planted in a city that holds the throne of Satan. And so I know this is hard ground to minister in. I know the neighborhood you live in. And so if you're out there today struggling because you live in a hard neighborhood, you live in a tough area, it's hard to minister. It couldn't have been any harder or it can't be any harder than it was to minister to these people who lived among the throne of Satan. So Jesus knows exactly what they were dealing with day in and day out Jesus knew exactly what evil they faced on a regular basis. Jesus knows today what believers all around the country, all around the world are facing at the hands of of governors and politicians who are closing churches. And, And so Jesus knows what we're going through. Jesus is there for us, and we have to keep leaning on him, keep trusting in him. And he will bring us through this without a doubt. Now, there may have been idol worship here and evil things done in these cities, in other cities rather, but this city, this city, the city of Pergamum, was the most evil place of all of those cities that we're going to look at today. And Jesus knows that the believers in Pergamus stand up for God and stand against the evil of the day. And this city certainly had some of the most evil days as it is the throne of Satan. I'm going to keep reminding you of that. So you know just what these believers, these Christians, these followers of Christ, were facing on a regular basis. Jesus says, I know your minute where your ministry field is. It's in the throne, it's where the throne of Satan is. Now I'd like to spend a little time here because through the backstory of Satan's throne, we're going to learn a little bit about the wiles of the enemy. And it's going to bring us to today and what we're facing today, actually. Jesus tells us the readers, you and I, and I'm looking around, and and I I can't see on Facebook Live or, or on the website, but I'm sure most of you have ears. So if you have ears, this message is written to us. It's for those who have ears to hear. And he wants to tell us about Satan's throne in Pergamum. Paul wrote this, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is in the image of God should shine on them. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Who's the God of this age? Satan. Satan. Satan is the God of this age. And Satan is keeping many people today, as he did then, in the dark, blinding them to the truth. Satan doesn't want people to know what he's up to. He wants to keep it in the dark as, as long as he can, so that when his plan comes to fruition, it's going to be too late for so many. The entire city, it seemed, of Pergamum, had come under the sway of the evil one, of the enemy, of the God of this age, except for a remnant, and I say remnant because you're going to see here in a little while, not all, not all stayed faithful. A remnant of believers in Christ Jesus, because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Amen? So, the throne of Satan, at the time of the writing of this letter, is located in Pergamum. Some scholars have said it wasn't the actual throne. It was because of the satanic influence with all the idol worship. But there was idol worship all over those days. Jesus said the throne of Satan is here. So I'm going with Jesus's interpretation. The throne of Satan is in Pergamum. And since Satan is the god of this world, I wonder, I just wonder, and I'm just throwing it out there, does that throne move around from time to time? I mean, perhaps it was in Europe during the Dark Ages during the Black Plague. Maybe it was in Africa during the genocide. And perhaps he moves it from place to place throughout the ages, and wherever it's at, it attracts evil, great evil, like Germany, Hitler, and the Nazi Party during World War II. And I want you to please remember that particular example because there is a connection here. The throne of Satan, we believe, was the altar to the king of gods, Zeus, See on on this, this this temple that they built has these stairs that go up, and at the top of those stairs was a bronze altar where they they dedicated or or sacrificed to their god Zeus. This altar, remember, was a thousand feet above the rest of the area up on this hill, and this structure had colonnades that extended out or jutted out from the sides, and on either side of it was the the colonnades, and then up the leading up to where the the altar was, was these steps, these massive steps. It was on that bronze altar that they would sacrifice to their god, Zeus, whom they considered, remember, their lord and savior. And so until recently, archaeologists believed that it was only animal sacrifices that they performed here. But they found human remains on this site. So now they... Now they suspect that there were also human sacrifices offered here to the god Zeus. And here's where it gets interesting, because there is a connection between Hitler and Nazi Germany and the altar to the god Zeus. In 18 rather, 1865, a German archaeologist discovered pieces of the altar in Pergamum. And so he unearthed the rest of it and then brought it back to Germany how he got it out of Turkey to Germany is another story. But he he excavates it piece by piece and brings it back to Germany with him. And so he has it placed in a museum in Germany. So this is around 1901 that this happens. This museum that it's housed in now, its new home, proves to be too small for it. So a larger one is built. That one opened around 1930 just in time to catch the eye of a charismatic leader rising to power named Adolf Hitler. Hitler was so impressed with this altar to Zeus as he looked at it and he saw the friezes with with Zeus on it and Athena and and all the gods battling the titans, the colonnade, the stairs, the, the, the altar, all of it just impressed him so much that he had his architect, Albert Speer, Create a colossal grandstand and parade field so that it would hold thousands upon thousands of German people who would come to hear his impassioned speeches. So it was on this parade ground that Albert Speer also reconstructed the Temple de Zeus with the altar to Zeus. And right where the altar to Zeus would have been, he put Hitler's podium. And so it was from this podium that Hitler, the architect of the Final Solution, stood and gave speech after impassioned speech after impassioned speech to grab the hearts and minds of the German people. This architect of the Final Solution, which killed over two million Jews in the ovens, stood here where the altar of Zeus was, drew the people unto himself like a god. He stood there like a god. That word holocaust that we know that dark time to be now means whole burnt sacrifice. So as Adolf Hitler is standing on this replica of the temple to Zeus, on this replica of the altar to Zeus from his podium, he's offering up over 2 million Jews who would be a whole burnt offering. To who? To him? That's what he thought. But in reality, to who? To Satan. It was an offering to Satan. Just like the temple priest did over 2,000 years ago in Pergamum. So here's another interesting connection for you, if you like connections, if you like to connect the dots. There may be a connection between the throne of Satan, the altar of Zeus, the podium of Hitler, and Babylon, which practiced black magic, the Magi's, the temple priest in Babylon. You see, housed also in that museum in Germany is, the, is a model of the Ishtar Gate. They just love to have evil things in this museum, I guess. It must be the Museum of Evil. The Ishtar Gate stood as the entrance to ancient Babylon. And the chief god of Babylon was Marduk, or Bel, or Lord. And so as the story goes, after Babylon fell to the Medes and the Persians, Darius, Osiris, had the Babylonian priests, the Magi, kicked out of Babylon. I guess they were getting a little too dark for them. And so the story says that they relocated themselves to Asia Minor, to Pergamum. And so there they continued the worship of Bel, their Lord and Savior. And so if that's true, then the throne of Satan has existed in that particular place for thousands of years, making this place even darker and more evil than you could ever imagine. And so I'm going to make one more connection here. And and so add one more argument to the fact that this is why Jesus says this is the throne of Satan. In the Bible, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent and thought of the heart was only evil continually. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. So what did God do? God sent the great flood. He sent the flood to wipe out the evil in the world. So only eight people, a remnant, survived that flood. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. After the flood came Nimrod. Nimrod was a grandson of Noah. And God had told Noah and his descendants to, if you remember, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In other words, go out, settle in the lands, form nations, nations and tongues. But Nimrod led his people to a place called Shinar and said this to the people who followed him. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Genesis chapter 11, verse 4. God's will for them was to be spread out, to form new nations and tongues. Nimrod led his people in rebellion against God's word by wanting to build a city and a name for himself and for them. And of course you know what happened after that. God came down from heaven and and he confused their languages and, and so they spread out and they formed new nations and tongues. But the connection here is in the land of Shinar. Shinar was located in what was to become Babylon, which is present day Iraq. Now, we know this was Babylon from Daniel the prophet. In Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, we read, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, with some of the articles of the house of God, which he, Nebuchadnezzar, carried into the land of Shinar, the house of his God. So Babylon was already known, For it's rebellion against God from this account in Nimrod. So here's what we know. The priests in Babylon were kicked out. They eventually settled in Pergamum. Pergamum was where the altar to Zeus was built. Which Jesus calls the throne of Satan. And it it was the reconstructed altar and, and, and temple to Zeus. And the Ishtar gate that was in Babylon. That was reconstructed in Germany. It was from there that caught the eye of Hitler who orchestrated or was the architect of the final solution. And so the point of all of this is, as you connect these dots, is just how deep, just how deep-rooted the evil is in this world. Just how much of a foothold Satan has gotten as the god of this age. All these connections that I've made here this morning, and there's more, are leading up to the day when the god of this world, Satan finally has all the pieces that he needs together to establish his kingdom here on earth where he wants to be worshipped as God. And just as God foiled the plans of Nimrod and God foiled the plans of the enemy all along, Jesus will come back to this earth to rule and reign and put an end to Satan once and for all. But we still see evil all around us, don't we? We still see mankind in rebellion to the Word of God. We still see the wickedness of man's heart. Man is still building cities and nations in their name, forgetting the God who created it all. Satan's throne is still on this earth. And he's feverishly working to bring about the rise of the Antichrist. That name says it all, doesn't it? The Antichrist. The Antichrist will stand against all that Jesus and his followers are for. And even so now, the spirit of the Antichrist is alive and well among us, isn't it? As we see governments around the country and governments around the world standing against what Jesus and his followers stand for. Satan knows. He knows his time is short. And so he's going crazy Ramping up his efforts because he knows he's, he's running toward the finish line. He knows that it's soon that his man, the Antichrist, will be installed rather as the leader of the world. And that's what he's looking for. He wants to be worshipped in the worst way. That's why we see evil no longer hiding in the shadows. Evil's out front. You can see it. You can see their plan. You, they're, not even, they're not even secretive about it anymore. They tell you what they want to do. It's never been more defiant and never been more rebellious. That's the age that we live in now. We could say that we live in a very dark time. A time that's just going to get darker and darker the closer it gets for the return of our Lord. And just like in the days of Noah, just like in the days of Nimrod, God's going to step in, God is going to intervene, and Satan will be thwarted once again. Amen? Because please don't ever forget... Don't ever forget that Satan starts out this battle, a defeated enemy. The third thing Jesus says about them is that you hold fast to the name of Jesus. So Jesus commends them for holding fast to his name. And, and what, a, what a, a statement that is by our Lord. They held fast to the name of Jesus in such a dark place. And I hope one day Jesus says that about us. That you stood firm, that you never denied my name, that you remained faithful to me even to the end. Even though you were in a dark place, even though you're surrounded by darkness, you stood firm. You were that light. Because listen, it's easy to profess our faith when there's little consequence to doing so, isn't it? But can you imagine being in such an evil city where seemingly everyone in the city had given themselves over to the darkness? Can you imagine being there? Can you imagine being among them, yet not giving in yourself? Refusing to denounce Jesus, refusing to bow down to their emperor, refusing to bow down to their gods? Can you imagine the, the courage and the, and the love, the love especially for Jesus Christ and for his word, that these people had to do that? Because in many cases, it cost them their life. It cost them everything that they had. Can you imagine how scary that would have been for them? Scarier than any virus we face today. Can you imagine what they faced? Can you imagine having to make the choice and being told that if you didn't worship Caesar and you didn't worship Zeus, that you would be put to death? It's hard to imagine having to make a choice like that, yet the believers in Pergamum made that choice every single day of their lives. Christians in Iran, in China, in Darfur, in Afghanistan, in all, uh, places all around the earth that are just as dark make that decision, even to this day they make that choice. And listen, they're choosing Jesus. They're choosing Jesus. They're choosing to hold fast to the name of Jesus. God bless them. Jesus said, you did not deny your faith, number four. In the face of all the temptations that they came across, many of the believers in Pergamum, lived their faith. They lived their lives in faith. The faith that they had in Jesus matched the way that they lived. Paul wrote this to Titus. He said, they profess to know God, talking about believers, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Titus chapter 1 verse 16. Christians can deny, we can deny our faith by the way we speak. We can deny our faith by the way we act. And we're going to see that in the admonition Jesus has for this church, some had already began to deny their faith. Some had already began to deny it by the way they were living. They were living in this world instead of for the word of Christ. The fifth thing Jesus has to say about them is his faithful martyr, Antipas. Now we're not sure who Antipas is, but whoever he is, he receives a special mention by Jesus. How amazing is that? Faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So we know that they were being martyred. We know that they were being persecuted and put to death for their faith. Now the Greek word for martyr is martus. And it means that it always means witness. Today we look at it as something different, right? A martyr is someone who gives his life for Christ. In that day, it would still to this day means a witness. That's what it means. And so the name antipas means against all. So whoever Antipas was, Jesus saw him as a faithful witness to him, even to the end. He is an example of exactly what it meant to hold fast to the name of Jesus and not deny your faith. So in comparison, the Antichrist, who stands against everything that, is, that Jesus is for, Antipas stood against everything that was against Jesus. Antipas, to the very end, stood up for Jesus and for the word of the Lord. In this evil day that we live, and as followers of Jesus Christ, we are also to be antipases. We are to be against everything that is against Jesus. Amen? And so here's the admonition that Jesus had against this church. Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. But I have a few things against you, because you have there... Those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. So, what is the doctrine of Balaam? Well, in Numbers chapters 22 and 24, 22 to 24, I should say, we read about how the Moabite king Balak got tried to get Balaam to curse the people of Israel so that they'd lose their effectiveness in battle. He wanted an edge up. He wanted, to get a, he wanted to have an edge over them in this battle, right? So God would not allow that to happen. And every time Balaam tried to curse the people of Israel, only blessings would come out of his mouth. But in Numbers chapter 25, we read that the Israelites had sinned. They had sinned against God. And because of that, over 20,000 people died from the plague. So what happened? Something happened in the interim. Balaam had gone to the king of Moab. And he said, listen, king, I got a deal for you. Let's work this out. If you can get the Moabite women to seduce the men of Israel, get them to start eating the meats dedicated to idols, get them, entice them in, then through that we can get them to start worshiping those idols and then God would not bless them as he had blessed them in the past. And so that's exactly what happened, because we read in Numbers 25, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. So the Israelites, who had committed their life to following God and obeying his word, compromised their faith. The Israelite men knew what they were doing. They knew they were going against the word of God. And yet they gave in to appease their wives. And in so doing, they compromised their faith. And so Jesus is saying that some of the believers in Pergamum had committed the same sin as the Israelites had committed. They had been seduced into the culture of Pergamum. And they were enticed to worship the gods that the people of Pergamum worshipped. They were enticed to worship the emperor that they worshipped. So how did that happen? I mean, many of them had stood firm in the name of Christ. Many of them not denied their faith. And many of them were put to death because of it. So what happened for them to compromise their faith? And I would, I would suggest that that's exactly what happened. That they saw their brothers and sisters being put to death and, and they were afraid. And rightly so. There was a fear in that. But listen, that compromise didn't happen overnight. It began to happen slowly, and the first thing that happened is they began to doubt in their mind if what they were doing was real, if, if their faith was strong enough to stand before someone and deny or not denounce the name of Jesus and not bow down to the emperor. Maybe they had this wrong. Maybe they were wrong all along. And so the beginning of the compromise began in their mind. It began in their thinking. Tony Evans said this, Compromise is the cancer of the church, and we must rid Christ's body of it. While Christians can compromise on preferences, they cannot compromise on principles. We can't be one way on Sunday and another on Monday. And this is a major problem among Christians in America today. We don't take a stand, we don't keep our standards, we merely shift to satisfy society. Is he right? Absolutely, I believe he is. So how does compromise begin? Well, it begins in the way we think, right? And then it begins by us making excuses. That's the first step. The believers in Pergamon began to make excuses for their sins. We, or at least I'll speak for myself, we still do that today, don't we? Or I still do that today, make excuses for my sin. I mean, we get angry, and we blame it on our circumstances. We blame it on the day we're having, right? I know when I get angry, I used to say, because I'm Jersey. It's not because I'm jury, it's because I'm a sinner. Plain and simple. I need to stop making excuses for my sin. We all do. Because that's where compromise begins. Number two, we begin to say, well, it has to be right. Everybody else is doing it. And if everyone else is doing it, then it must be the right thing to do. Listen, just because it's legal, just because everyone else is doing it, does not make it the right thing to do. Paul said, all things are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. So there are things that are lawful. There are things that are okay to do, but not all of them are right for a Christian to do. And so I just want to use one example, and I'm not picking on any particular group. I just want to use one example, and that's premarital sex. It's an easy example because the world believes that's acceptable, don't they? It's certainly not illegal. So it's right with the world. It seems like everybody's doing it. So it must be right for us. What's the big deal after all, right? Listen, to compromise that core value would be to say, well, everyone else is doing it. Why can't I? The answer is simple to that question. You can't do it because the word of God says you can't do it. Plain and simple. But we can, listen, there's an old saying, if you torture the word of God, you can make it say anything you want it to say. I don't care how long you torture the word of God. It will never tell you that it's okay to be in a premarital, have premarital sex. It just doesn't, you're not going to torture it that much to get it to say that. Please don't misunderstand me. I am not Mr. Perfect. I do not stand up here week after week pretending that I am perfect. And those who know me best would say amen to that, brother. I mess up. I mess up all the time. But here's the point. We all stumble. We all stumble. And all of us have stumbled in many areas in our lives, in our Christian walk. We have. But we get back up again, and we brush ourselves off, and we continue to follow the Lord. And what was going on here was that they weren't repenting. They weren't turning back. They weren't brushing themselves off. They were going headlong into this. They were practicing these things. See, it's quite, it's one thing to stumble into sin. It's quite another thing to continue to practice that sin. These believers had compromised their faith by seeing the world around them doing these things and falling into the practice of doing it themselves and not turning from it and not repenting of it. They knew it was right, yet they practiced what they knew to be wrong. That's their compromise. And then third, the third thing that leads to compromise is to say in our hearts that God will forgive me. Paul dealt with this very thing, right, where sin abounds, doesn't grace abound more? And what they're saying is, hey, Lord, we can sin all we want. Because all we have to do is, is say I'm sorry and repent and turn back to God. It's a win-win. Let's go out party all weekend long, and on Monday we'll repent and turn back to God and live like Christians from Monday to Friday. That's a good thing if you can get away with it, isn't it? What they were looking to do is sin all they wanted because they knew God would forgive them. Listen, the grace of God is more than just forgiveness. Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, those who are sick need to be healed. And Jesus was talking not about sick people, he was talking about people in sin. Jesus, the great physician, has the power to heal us of our sin so that we no longer live in it, we no longer practice it. You see, only He can forgive us for sins we've already committed, but He can also show us how to overcome the sin that we stumble into in our lives. How amazing is that? So God's grace isn't a license to sin, it's a way we keep from sinning. You know, ever since the garden, Satan has used temptation to seduce and entice people, believers, to fall into and compromise sin, to fall into sin and compromise their lives, compromise their faith in the Word of God. Satan can't rob us of salvation. Once you are his, you are his. The point is, please, make sure that you are his. And the Bible tells us to, to, to search our faith, to, to see if we are of the faith, to, to examine ourselves, judge ourselves, Satan, once we are gods, he can't rob us of our salvation, but he can render us unusable for the kingdom of heaven because of the sin that we're in. So don't let the doctrine of Balaam, of compromise, lead you to do what you know is wrong because you know the right thing to do. And just take note of this, that the believers in Pergamum just didn't dive into the deep end here. They started out in the shallow end and then drifted into the deep end they started by being able to stand up with their head above water thinking, I can handle this. I can do this. I can just once or twice and I'm out of here. And before they knew it, they were in the deep end in over their head. And they didn't know how to get out of it. And what it began with, as we know, was them just eating meat dedicated to idols. No big deal, right? I like steak. I like ribs. I like barbecue chicken. I'm going to have a little bit. I don't care that it was dedicated to Zeus. It looks pretty good. What could it hurt for me to have that piece of meat? And before you knew it, they were actually sacrificing and worshiping Zeus. And that's how it begins. That's how compromise begins. Here's the other thing Jesus has against them. Verse 15. Thus you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Before we look into what the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is, I want you to point out that Pergamum can also mean marriage. That name can also mean marriage. And from what we're reading here, it seems that some of the church had married themselves to the world. And isn't that exactly what Jesus warns us against? That we are in this world, but we are not to be of this world. So Jesus admonishes them for not only being of the doctrine of Balaam, but also for being of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now we don't know much about who the Nicolaitans were but we do know that the name Nicolaitan means to conquer the people or to destroy the people. And it seems that this sect had influenced believers to eat meat, knowingly sacrifice to idols, and engage in sexual immorality just like the doctrine of Balaam. There's, there seems to be a lot of similarity between these two doctrines. So by virtue of their name They conquered many a believer, even whole churches at the time, into adopting their false doctrines. Do we see that today? Do we see believers being deceived, whole churches being deceived by false doctrine? We also know that the name Nicolaita means to lord over, which means that they had established themselves as superior to the other believers Now, perhaps they claim that the Lord had given them a special revelation. I always get chills. I mean, the hair stands up on the back of my neck when I hear somebody tell me they have a special revelation from God. Uh, We do know, and I hope all who are listening to my voice, all believers, know that there is no new revelation, that all the things that God has to tell us is contained in this book, and that's it. It's done. But maybe they said, we have a special revelation from God, and they became spiritually superior to the others. Listen, we're all gifted in the body of Christ, all of us. Each of us has a spiritual gift for what? What's our spiritual gifts for? The edification of the entire body, right? And so that means that I am no better than anyone else in this room. I just have a different gift. That's all. It just so happens that the gift I have enables me to stand up here and and give a message on a Sunday, but that doesn't make me, my gift doesn't make me any better or any worse than any of you. My gift isn't any better or any worse than any of your gifts. We're all the same. We're one body united in Christ. And all of our gifts are for the edification of the body. So the sin in the believers of Pergamum was one of compromise. They gave up what they believed and stood for, for what the rest of the world was following. They gave it up to satisfy their own lust and to appease other people. They were easily deceived. Easily deceived. Anyone who came along, anyone who who said what they wanted to hear, would easily lead them astray. And you know what? The day is coming. It's fast approaching, I believe, when the Antichrist will deceive many, will lead many down a road to destruction. And so Jesus says to them in verse 16, Repent, or else I will come to, to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of, the, of my mouth. Repent. Repent, he tells them. You know, repentance is not just a name or a word, rather, for new believers. As believers of Jesus Christ, we should also be repenting of our sin, whenever we sin. That's why John wrote, if we confess our sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First John 1 John 1.9, right? John's reminding believers that we do sin. In fact, he says, if you say you don't sin, you are a liar. John points out the fact that we're all sinners. And he says, if you sin, you need to confess of that sin. You need to repent of that sin. So Jesus is telling the church in Pergamum, you need to confess. You need to confess the sin that you're in, the sin of compromise, what you've been doing. You need to repent of it and turn back to me. Or else, Jesus says to them, I don't know about you, but that makes me cringe. All el- or else? When Jesus says or else to you, that should really cause you to sit up and take notice. Or else. Peter tells us a judgment begins in the house of the Lord 1st Peter chapter 4 verse 17. So Jesus is going to come at them with that sword, that sword of judgment, that sword of the word. And and that sword of Jesus is going to bring against them judgment. Judgment for what they're doing. And the word of God, the light of the word of God is going to expose them It's going to expose their evil deeds. It's going to expose what they're doing because light cannot stand the darkness. And that's what the Word of God does, doesn't it? It exposes our sin. It puts a light on it. It shows us what's wrong in our lives. And so the Word of God, when that light shines in the darkness and it shines on on what we're doing in our lives, hopefully, prayerfully, that light brings repentance to us. You know, that's why many churches today steer clear of the Word of God. Many churches, they, if the governor decided tomorrow, or a president decided tomorrow, that the Bible was hate speech and it couldn't be used in a church gathering or anywhere for that matter, that would affect a very small number of churches. Many churches don't even bring Bibles, people don't even bring their Bibles to church. Many pastors don't even teach from the Word of God, from the pulpit. And so for somebody to declare the Bible hate speech, it would only affect those who truly Stand firm on the word of God and do not deny his name. But the word of God that some of these churches don't allow Bibles in because they're teaching false doctrine and the word of God contained in the Bible would shed light on that darkness. And that's the last thing the darkness wants, right, is light. Look at verse 17, the last verse. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes... I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So Jesus promises the overcomer, those who remain faithful to him to the very end, three things. One, he promises them hidden manna. Now manna was that honey-flavored, white coriander seed kind of a bread thing that came down, and the, and the Israelites went out and gathered it every morning and they made manna kali, They made all the manna stew, you know, all the manas they made. Manna was a source of sustenance for them. Manna represents Jesus, the bread of life, who is a source of spiritual sustenance for us. And so Jesus is telling the believers and the overcomers in Pergamum, don't worry about anything. I am your source, I am your bread of life, I am your sustenance. When everyone else is against you, I am for you. Then he promises them a white stone. And the best possible meaning of this white stone is that it was a Roman custom of awarding a white stone to the victors of athletic competitions. And that's not the only reference to athletic competition in the Bible. I mean, Paul compares this walk to a race, right? And he says that at the end of the race, you get a crown, just like the athlete would get a crown when he won the race. And we know that crown for us to be the crown of life. And so at the end of his race, Paul said, I have finished my race. I have kept the faith. I have fought the fight. How amazing is that? That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. That's what an overcomer does. He keeps the faith. He finishes the race. And he never gives up the fight. And number three, Jesus says, I'm going to give you a new name. When the victor received that white stone, inscribed on it was his or her name. And so they were also given an invitation to a banquet, a sports banquet, if you will. And it's a picture of, the picture Jesus is giving to the church here in Pergamum is, all who overcome, all who overcome the temptations and the lures of this world all those who choose the world over Jesus, all those who are married to the Lamb of God and not to this world, will be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, where you will be given a new name. Not new in contrast to old, but new in quality. You're going to, we're going to be glorified as we stand before our Lord. So what's the application here? Just one this morning, just one. Compromise. Are you compromising your faith? As believers, we're faced with compromise every day of our lives, aren't we? And sometimes compromise is good. When you compromise to keep peace and equality within a relationship, it's not always a bad thing, is it? Sometimes you have to compromise. Sometimes the husband has to turn the air conditioner down a little bit. We're not going to go down that road, but... Anytime we compromise on the Word of God, though, that's a bad thing. Anytime we compromise on the Word of God, it's taking a step back into the world, and that is sin. The Bible tells us that it's not enough just to do the right thing. It tells us that to even know what the right thing is to do and not to do it, that in and of itself is a sin. To love the things of this world is to compromise the Word of God. Listen to what John wrote. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15-17, through 17, he writes, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. This world that many of us have fallen in love with, Is passing away. And so what we've seen in this message this morning is just how deep the roots of evil have gone. Just how deeply it's enrooted in this world. And so that makes the words of Jesus even more applicable today than ever before when he said, Build your house on the rock. Because when the storm comes and the winds blow and the rains come, your house will not fall. And he means us, our faith, build our faith on the rock, on Jesus Christ. Because those who build it on the sand, when the rains come and the winds blow, it's going to fall. It's going to fall. When the root of the evil in this world comes against this world in your house, you are not rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ, you're going to fall. You're going to fall. The only thing that we have that we know that will last forever is our relationship with Christ and heaven. That's the only guarantee we have. That's the only thing that we know that will last forever. But we tend to forget that sometimes, don't we? And so God needs to get our attention sometimes. And sometimes God uses trials in our lives to get our attention. Trials tend to shed some light on what we've been doing, on the sinful behavior in our lives. And please allow me to explain. Trials, like the one we're in now, with COVID-19, tend to get us in the Word more, doesn't it? We tend to open up that Bible more. We tend to spend more time with the Lord. We tend to spend more time on our knees. And the Word of God, as we've already established, helps shed light on our lives. So God will use a trial to get our attention, to steer us in a different direction than the one we're going in. And maybe through this trial, you've discovered that you've been compromising your faith. Maybe you've discovered that you know what the right thing is to do, but you've been doing the wrong thing. And so here's the good news. Just as Jesus told the believers in Pergamum, all is not lost. All is not lost. You've been compromising your faith. Turn to me. Repent of your sin and turn back to me. What Satan meant for evil in our lives, God can turn to good. Amen? One of the tools the enemy has, and he's very effective with it, is to whisper in your ear, look at what you've done. You've sinned against God again. God can't possibly forgive you for this now. You've sinned too many times. You've gone point the, past the point of forgiveness. Is there a, a past the point of forgiveness with God? No. That's what 1 John 1.9 is all about. Satan lies to us. That's why the Bible calls him the father of lies. He may deceive you into compromising your faith, but if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you already have victory over Satan. You've already had victory over the sin that you're in. So instead of hanging your head and saying, I can't be forgiven, repent of your sin. Turn back to Jesus Christ and move on in confident faith that you've been forgiven as far as the East is from the West. Because the word that John's... John's word in in chapter 1, verses 9, says continuously. The idea there in the Greek, that word means continuously, or that verse means continuously. If we sin, and we continuously repent of that sin, God, listen to this, God continuously forgives us of our sin. There is no past the point of forgiveness with God. Confess your sin repent if you've compromised in your life, turn back to God, and no matter how many times this happens, He will continuously forgive us. And I like to believe that the, the more we go before the Lord, the more we bring our sin to Him, the more we confess it, I don't think we sin more. I think the more we establish that relationship with the Lord, the more we feel His love and His forgiveness, the less we want to sin, the less we engage in sin. And then there comes a time in our life when we're not sinless, We'll never be sinless on this side of heaven, but we sin less and less and less. And so if you're here today or if you're listening to us and you don't have that personal intimate relationship with Jesus Christ where you can go to him and confess and repent and be forgiven, well, I'm going to tell you this morning how you can do that. It's as simple as A, B, C. And we're going to do this each and every message because I pray that that, that it reaches the ears of so many people and if you, if you have this, if you get this on Facebook, if you get it any other way, share it. Share it with your family and friends. Because we want to see everyone, God wants to see everyone, come to know his son as Lord and Savior. So the A stands for admit. Admit, confess that you're a sinner. Tell God already knows that you've committed the sin. He already knows it. He wants us to confess it. He wants us to admit it. The Bible tells us that none of us are without sin that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10 says, you've all sinned. There's none righteous, not even one, not one. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we can admit that we're sinners. We commit that we've committed sin in our lives. As a believer in Jesus Christ, does not mean you're sinless? It means you're going to sin again. And the first John 1.9 says, helps us to realize that we could bring that sin before the Lord and He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, when you confess to Him now your sin and, and turn from it and repent of it, you become a follower of Jesus Christ. Your sins are forgiven as far as the east is from the west. And so that brings us to being. Believe in all your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. Believe in your heart. Romans 10 10 and 11 say, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So once you admit and confess that you are a sinner, and you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is the only way, he's the only way to salvation, the only way to be saved, is by believing in Christ, believing that He is the Messiah, that He is the Savior, that God did, He came from heaven, God sent Him to this earth to die for our sins. If you believe that in your heart, then repent of your sin and turn to Him. And that brings us to see, call upon the name of the Lord, call out to Jesus Call out to him. Tell him, I can't do this anymore on my own, Lord. I need you. I need you in my life. I need your forgiveness. I need your love. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, and here's the great news, the good news, you will be saved. There's no doubt there. There's no but there. You will be saved. And now, so if, if you, if this is your heart, if the Holy Spirit's tugging at your heart and this is a relationship that you want to have and you just don't know how to put this in words, well, I'm going to pray a prayer with you. It's not a magic prayer. It's not, these are not magic words. They're not magic beans that you plant in the ground and it raises up a big stalk that leads to the golden egg. It has nothing to do with any of that. It's just, we're just going to put into words what we just talked about. And if you believe this in your heart, and that's the key, believing it in your heart, then Jesus, will come in, in, then Jesus will come. become part of your life as you submit and give your heart to him. So just pray with me. Dear God, I admit that I am a sinner. And Lord, I call upon your name. And as you said, Lord, if I call upon your name, I will be saved. So I call upon your name, Lord Jesus. I admit that I am a sinner. And I profess to you right now that I will turn from that sin and turn to you. I believe with all of my heart that you are the Messiah, that you are the Christ, and that God has raised you from the dead. And I pray, Lord, for eternal life to be granted unto me right now, this day. Please forgive me of my sins. Please Fill me with your Holy Spirit to help me live a life that is honoring and pleasing to you and help me to turn from my sin and turn to you. Fill me, Lord. Fill me with your Spirit. Fill me with your love. Fill me with you, Lord. Let me feel this day your presence and know your forgiveness. I pray it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. I can't tell you how much... I love the word of God and how much I love you guys. And I pray that you've prayed that prayer. And if you have, welcome to the family of God. God bless you guys.